Good morning. Uh, welcome, welcome to Midtown Home Church and those joining uh, virtually online. Um, it is uh, still, even after several months of doing this, it's this, it's this strange experience of um, loving being together with uh, the church that we would say you didn't come to church, but if you belong to Jesus, you are the church. And so it's amazing to be with the church, even with just a couple dozen folks in person, uh, longing, uh, though, for the gap of what we, we wish were so. Um, and so we're actually going to speak to some of that this morning as we talk about what's it like to wait with longing, what's it like to wait with hoping and aching and wanting uh, reality to be different than it is. We'll talk about some this morning, but I'm experiencing all of it right now, loving being together and longing for it to be different. Um, but in this Advent season, we're actually uh, we're doing something that we're calling Singing the Story, uh, the music behind the miracle. A lot of alliterations in there. Uh, but we are essentially taking, and you can uh, blame or thank Daryl Jones for this, who wrote this uh, sermon outline, sermon series outline. Uh, we're taking well-known Christmas songs, well-known Christmas hymns, and we're, we're actually pausing to go, hey, do we know what we're singing like, I know we know all the words. If you grew up in church, even if you didn't grow up in church, you know a lot of the words to well-known Christmas hymns. And do we know what we're actually saying? And how, uh, when you, when you kind of collide those, those songs that we sing each year with the story of Christmas, they, they actually explode something deep in our hearts. And so we're paying attention to these familiar lyrics, trying to slow down and understand what we're singing. And today's song is, O Come All You Faithful, which I actually, I've gone back and forth on this, is, I think, a bad title. Just honestly. Um, no one asked my opinion, and it was written hundreds of years ago, uh, so they aren't even around for me to critique them. But um, it maybe should be called, O Come All Ye Unfaithful, <laughs> um, which is, is more uh, reality, um, and O Come All Ye Faithful, Joyful and Triumphant. I don't always feel those things, but in one, in one sense, I don't love the title, and in another sense, it's actually really true. Uh, because of Jesus, we can sing these words and mean them. But the heart of this song, uh, as it, after it gets past the, the opening title, the opening line, um, O call, Come All Ye Unfaithful. Uh, it's, it's a call, actually. It's a beckoning. It's a wooing. It's a, it's a join me in singing and adoring this Jesus who's been born. And you'll hear it over and over again. We're going to sing it right after the sermon. We're going to sing it. The, the second line of, this, of the song uh, says this, Sing, choirs of angels. Sing in exultation. Sing, all you citizens of heaven above Glory to God, glory in the highest. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. That it's this, it's this invitation and even this almost command and this longing to go, hey, do you know you were made to worship this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem? Do you know that your heart's greatest longing was actually to adore him? And that we would actually sing it and repeat it many times throughout this Christmas hymn. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. And so here's the question that we're going to ask with that song uh, as the backdrop, with that song is where we're headed uh, at the end of the sermon in a couple hours, uh, to sing together. Oh, come let us adore him. Why would any of us adore Jesus? And, and does anyone in here actually want to adore Jesus? Is that actually something that, that draws you in or is it something that we just sing? Oh, come let us adore him. Yeah, it's Christmas. Oh, come let us adore him, this baby in the manger. But why would we ever actually adore Jesus? Why would we actually ever worship Jesus? And maybe even this, why would we actually ever want to adore Jesus? So we turn in our story found in Luke chapter 2, the story surrounding uh, the, the Christmas tale. 
Um, this story actually takes place uh, just a month or so after Jesus has been born. This is, we're going to just focus on one minor character named Anna. Jesus has just been born, and he's being brought to the temple for dedication uh, in, in Jewish tradition 40 days after birth. This, this baby is, is 40 days old which means he is doing nothing but pooping, eating, and not sleeping, okay? This is not like a, a joy of the world season for Mary and Joseph. This is a, an excruciating season for Mary and Joseph. 40 days old, he's being brought to the temple to be dedicated. And we meet this man named Simeon, which we'll actually look at next week. Uh, we'll talk about him. Uh, but after they meet Simeon, Mary and Joseph, with this newborn, this fragile newborn Messiah in their arms, We read this in Luke chapter 2, three verses. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we turn our attention to God's word? Jesus, um, would you uh, save us from our checked out monotony? Would you, um, would you knock us off of our treadmill routines that, that simply make church a place we go instead of church being the place where heaven and earth meet and we would leave this place changed? That would you do the miraculous and the, and the mystical, would you, would you do what only you can do, which is to actually form us, shape us, change us, retune us, that we would leave here not just having adored you, Jesus, but leave here wanting to adore you more. Would you make it so you can do that? You, you promise actually to do that through your word and through the gathering of the saints, and so would you, would you do that now? Beyond our understanding, beyond what we can comprehend, would you do that? Would you change us in this time? Even if we can't tell that change has happened, would you do that, we pray. We pray now for the one who you've called to, che- to teach your word this morning, that you forgive his sins, for they are many. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus is being dedicated to the temple, and this woman, Anna, comes up to meet the baby, and she knows that this baby Jesus is the Messiah. And it's just three verses. Anna is an easy Christmas character to kind of pass over. Um, it's just three verses about Anna. And, and if we do that, if we just kind of pass over it, we'll miss something. We almost, we almost need to uh, take a microscope. That If you remember high school science, high school biology, that you, you would take like a microscope and look at these, uh, these, these tiny micro items and you would see buried within them this this depth and this complexity that actually buried within these three verses about Anna is a lot to, to, to plumb out, a lot to treasure out. So Anna, who is she? Well, one of the things we first find out about her is she's a widow. Verse 37 tells us that either the, the Greek translation is hard, and so different English translations communicate it differently, but essentially she's either been a widow for 84 years or she is 84 years old and she's been a widow up until the time of being 84. One of those two things, it doesn't really matter which one it is, it doesn't change the essence of it, she's been a widow for a very long time. Do you know what it's like to be a widow? Some of you do. Some of you watching at home I know do. Some of you know the pain of that, of being a widow. Some of you know the pain of having to bury a husband or bury a spouse 
This woman has mourned the death of her spouse who she was married to for seven years, we're told, and now either she's, she's 84 or has been mourning for 84 years, decades. She's holding the sorrow of that. And I know that I, I've talked with widows that one of the things that, that you can't really comprehend about life as a widow until you've walked through that is that your memories begin to fade of your loved one and you start to go, what did their voice sound like? I miss, I miss hearing from them. What, 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 were the, what were stories about them that the memories begin to fade and even the experience of how can I even recall their presence to, to bring me comfort in the present is, is this fleeting thing. And so for 84 years, this woman has lived with the sorrow and the grief and the loss that she has no spouse to share life with. She has no spouse to laugh and cry with. She has no spouse, and get this, in this culture it would have been a huge deal. She has no spouse to provide for her financially or even culturally to give her meaning and purpose. No spouse to raise children with. No spouse to grow old with, with the one that she thought she would be forever knit together with. No one to look beside her and turn to her side and then be able to in, in unison look back over the course of their life and say, hasn't God been so good to us? None of that. That there, till death do us part, parted them way earlier than they ever intended. And so from this one word of, of Anna, this one description, she's been a widow and a widow for a long time, for 84 years. Here's what we know massively about Anna. She has experienced more loneliness, more unmet longing, and more soul aching than she ever intended on experiencing. She has experienced that place of loss and grief and, and complicated sorrow and, and missing the past and wanting things to have been different. She's experienced that for a very long time. And it's not just that she's experienced it. She's experiencing all of those things for 84 years, way more than she ever planned on doing. And so before we move on to learn more about Anna, here's what I want to ask you. Can you relate to her? Even if you're not a widow, and I'm not asking you to try to empathize uh, so much with the widowness of her story, but just to say, do you, would you raise your hand and say, hey, I actually know exactly what it's like. I've lived long enough to have a life that says to me, this has not gone the way that I had planned. I've got more aching, I've got more soul longing, I've got more unmet desires, I've got more sorrow, I've got more grief. There's seasons I wish I've, I could forget about. There's acts that I've done that I wish I could undo. There's acts that have been done to me that I wish I could undo. There's all of this grieving in the present. There's more sorrow, there's more loss. This is not how I planned on it going. Anna knows about it. And not only is she a woman who has had more aching and longing than she ever planned on, she's not only a widow, she's in waiting, we're told. Verse 38 says, and coming up at that very hour, this is her walking up to Jesus and, and Mary and Joseph, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So not only is she a widow, She's a waiting widow. See, Anna had the eyes to see in real time. She sees this baby and she knows this is the Messiah. She knows. It's what we're told. She, she immediately sees this baby at the temple and she's got the eyes to see it. This is the one we've all been waiting on. So I have to go tell all the other people who've been waiting that the birth of this baby is the end of our waiting. 
Meaning, she knows what it's like to wait. She knows what it's like to long. She knows what it's like to have this thing out in the future that she hopes will come true. This waiting and longing, this expectation of the Messiah coming to her and coming to Israel. And she's saying, hey, Israel, the waiting is over. So what does that mean, that she was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem or waiting for the redemption of Israel? What does it mean? What were they waiting on exactly? So I want to pause here for just a minute because if you've grown up in church or if you've heard the Christmas story or you're familiar with Christianity in any way, you know on even a microscopic level that Jesus is the, the, the answer to what the Old Testament was waiting on. And so it's easy to say, oh, she's waiting on the redemption of Israel or waiting on the redemption of Jerusalem and, and the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, the God-fearing Israelites, their waiting was over. But if we just say that, if we just say that Anna was someone who knew now the waiting was over, we miss out on the depth of what she was actually waiting on and we miss out on the experience for her in the waiting. It's hard to capture and communicate the depth to which this waiting went for the people of God in Israel at this time. It's hard to articulate the longing and the groaning and the expectations and the waiting that the Israelites were doing at this time. And so if we were going to try to capture it just plainly or try to capture it um, with, with, with just a few words or a few sentences, this is going to sound hyperbolic. It does sound hyperbolic when we sing it. It's a line from another Christmas hymn that we sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. There's a line in that song that captures the waiting, captures the, the level of waiting that all of Israel was doing at this point. It says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight talking about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, meaning the hopes and fears, meaning the things that people hope for, the things that people fear, and therefore the things that people love, all of them, of all the years, do you know how many all the years is? It's all of them. The, the hoping and the fearing and the longing and the loving and the groaning and the waiting, all of it is met, is relieved, is satiated, is found in the birth of this baby Jesus. Sounds like the writer is exaggerating. But it's not too much to say, it's not overhyping it too much to say that everything, everything anyone had ever hoped for, everything anyone had ever feared or loved, all of it is met in the birth of this baby boy. It's the weight of everything that has ever mattered for every human that has ever existed. It's a lot of evers. Sounds hyperbolic to prove a point, but it's not. Because embedded in this phrase, waiting on the redemption of Jerusalem, is the weight of glory. Everything is waiting on this moment. Everything in all the cosmos, everything in all of the Old Testament, literally from Genesis to Malachi, or Malachi, the Italian prophet as you call him around here, Genesis to Malachi, the 39 books of the Old Testament, with hundreds of promises has been leading up to this moment and the birth of this boy. That the, the promises associated with the coming of the Messiah were so grand and so next level that people began to believe there's no way one person could do all that. There's no way that one guy, that one Messiah could capture all the promises and all the longing and all the expectation we have for this one Messiah. Let me give you three of them. Genesis chapter three, right after the fall in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are with God and they are promised by the Lord, there will come a seed from this woman. There will come an offspring of this woman who will one day crush the serpent's head. 
meaning there's coming one from this line of Eve, from humanity's line, that will end darkness and sadness and sorrow. We'll end it. We'll crush the serpent's head. We'll be rid of it. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is promised that one of his offspring will one day bless the whole world. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise is made to David and King David and his lineage. He's promised that his lineage from his line will come a king and that king will sit on his throne forever and there will never be a time where that king is not on his throne and there will never be a time where that king's kingdom has an end. Okay, so that's three promises about the same Messiah. Crush evil, end sadness and darkness. Bless the whole world and sit on a throne forever. Those are just three of literally the hundreds of promises that are wrapped up in the coming of the Messiah. Israel in the world has been waiting on this moment. These cosmic-sized promises, these transcendent hopes and these eternal desires. So you take all of those things that are wrapped up in the redemption of, of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, and then you add to it that little word right before it, thousands of years of waiting. Waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for those promises to come true. Waiting so much, in fact, that it would be really easy to believe those promises are too grand. That person could never exist. There's no way it could actually happen. So that the waiting becomes a time where you actually begin to think, I'm probably insane for believing that this waiting would ever end. What's it like for you when you wait on something that matters to you? If you've ever been engaged or are currently engaged, what's it like waiting for wedding day? I've done several COVID weddings, too many in fact. Um, no super spreader events, don't worry. But one was close. But um, done, done several COVID weddings. Uh, you take the, the, the already giant uh, potential train wreck that can happen between couples and in-laws and future families in a, in a wedding planning season, you overlay a global pandemic on it. it, it gets interesting. And so there's a lot of waiting I'm experiencing from people these days of just all the complications and all the longing. Has anyone in here ever been in middle school or high school or college or grad school or med school or whatever where you're actually waiting for that day to come where you're done with your schooling or you're moving on from the schooling onto the next thing? You're waiting on this shift to happen. Has anyone ever been pregnant? Literally like holding the waiting inside of you and knowing that one day this delivery will happen. What's that waiting like for you? When you've planned a fun trip or a vacation, what are the days and weeks and months like leading up to the fun trip, the new experience where you're going? I would imagine that if you're going with me in your imagination to any of those things, and there's dozens of others, you all might be waiting on lots of things. You might be waiting on a spouse, you might be waiting on kids, you might be waiting on kids to come home, you might be waiting on all kinds of things. You might be waiting on making more money or waiting on a different job or waiting on a different life. Whatever the waiting is, that experience comes with it that waiting is not this neutral thing. Nobody just waits and has no feelings about the waiting. Waiting is difficult. And so there certainly can be some anticipation and some hoping and some excitement and some longing there are also going to be a ton of anxiety and fear and nervousness of going I mean think about becoming a parent for the first time that you're going I have no idea what's coming I'm excited and I'm terrified at the same time so if you can go to that experience in your own mind the 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 experience of waiting for something that you know is coming I don't I don't care what it is can you layer on top of that or layer underneath that depending on which one adds more weight in your mind 
the same expectation, the same longing, the same groaning, the same anxiety, the same excitement, the same nervousness, the same wanting the waiting to end. And then can you imagine having all of that same experience of the longing and the hoping and the anticipating and never having a date to put an end to the waiting? Like knowing that, oh gosh, I just, I need this thing to happen. I want this thing to happen. And there's no promise of when that would happen. There's no wedding date on the books. There's no due date on the books. There's no graduation date on the book. There's no takeoff time for a plane for your next trip. There is nothing to tell you when the waiting will be over. Just waiting. We Americans, not so great at waiting. And it's part of what has made this experience of 2020 taunting and excruciating for many of us. It's not the only thing, but we have this thing that has shifted and it's changed our lives. And now we're waiting and guess what no one has told us when the waiting will be over. And so the taunt that circles, even in your own minds, that goes, when is this going to be over? When's it going to go back to normal? When will I be able to see my friends and my family again? When will school be different? When will church be different? When will it all be, when will, is there going to be a vaccine? When's the vaccine? Is everyone going to get the vaccine? What are the questions about the vaccine? Which vaccine should I get? All of the things that are coming that have no end date in sight. 2020 has been such a taunt with the question, when will the waiting end? When will we not have to wait anymore? When waiting has no relief in sight, for many of us, it turns into despair, and for some of us, it turns into depression. And so when we begin to wait, and there's no promise, no guarantee of when the waiting will be over, we're starting to get close to how Anna would feel. We're starting to get close to how Israel would feel. That Anna's not just waiting in her little generation of time for the promised Messiah to arrive. She's been waiting with all of her people and the generations have avalanched into this moment for thousands of years with hundreds of promises for this Messiah to come with no promised day in sight to end the waiting. We long for it, but when the waiting doesn't have a promised end, here's what begins to happen for us. It feels like and seems like God is silent. I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm longing. When is my marriage going to get better? When is my relationship going to get better? When is my community going to get more fulfilling? When is my job going to be more satisfying? When will I have kids? When will I have a spouse? When will I have, when, 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 and then, and then here's what begins to happen. God, you must not care about any of this. Because when the waiting gets excruciating, then we begin to become accusers of God in his apparent silence. You must not care about me. And so we join with some of the most haunting words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45 says these words. I'm going to read it from the King James Version because the these and the thous and the thighs actually capture to me the weight of this statement. It's haunting. Isaiah, who was a prophet to exiles, meaning a prophet to those waiting on the Messiah, but nothing seems to be changing about the promises of the Messiah coming true. They're in captivity. When's it going to be over? When will our waiting be done? Here's what Isaiah says about the Lord. Truly, thou art a God who hides thyself. Truly, thou art a God who hides thyself. Does God ever seem hidden to you? A God who literally cannot be seen and in his unseenness and seeming silence appears to be far off and disinterested. Truly thou art a God who hides thyself. When waiting has no end, that's what it feels like. 
God, you're hidden from me. Do you not want to be found by me? I've been crying out to you day and night, and this avalanche is built, and I'm suffocating under the weight of my waiting. And Anna would come alongside all of us and put her fragile old arms around us and say, I get it. I get it. You're waiting. You're waiting. You're waiting for your addictions to be kicked. You're waiting for somebody to come along. You're waiting for joy to not feel so out of reach. You're waiting for relational strife to be over. You're waiting for your own life to not feel the way that it feels. And Anna says, I know. I know what it's like to groan. I know what it's like to wait. I know what it's like to long. I know what it's like to grieve. I know what it's like. I know what it's like. I know what it's like. I've been doing it for 84 years. And, amplify that, I've been, I've been holding the weight of waiting for the last thousand years, or 2,000 years, or 5,000 years. But with her arm around us, sweet little Anna would come alongside of us and not just say, I get it. She would say something else to us too. Because you see, while she's been this waiting widow, she's been doing something. She has not been an idle waiter meaning she hasn't been sitting motionless or emotionless in this time. What has the waiting widow been doing? Look back with me one more time at the passage. We throw the passage up for me? We're gonna read this one more time together. It says, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84 or a widow for 84 years after. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now that phrase at the end, night and day, don't, it's not meant to be taken literal. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a euphemism, it's a colloquialism, it's, it's, it's a, like a, a Hebrew, a Jewish turn of phrase. Uh, that in, Instead of, it, it basically is saying like, she was there all the stinking time, <laughs> night and day. Like anytime the church doors were open, she was there. A good old Southern Baptist, you know, for Wednesday potluck. She was just there. She was just at the church. She was, she was just there. If the church is, if the temple's open, Anna was going to be there. And what was she doing? She was worshiping. Please don't miss this. This is talking about pre-Jesus Anna. This is not talking about, like, once she met Jesus, she didn't leave the temple. Day and night she was there after she met that baby, man. It just lit her on fire. No. Anna was worshiping while she was waiting. She was worshiping in the dark. She was worshiping in the sorrow. She was worshiping in the aching. She was worshiping in the waiting. So what are we talking about? Like, do you hear that? And do you just think like, God, what is this guy talking about? Is Elliot just up there talking about this like naive form of escapism that totally tries to remove itself like nirvana up in the clouds that just escapes from the suffering of our lives and pretends like it's not there? Is that what he's talking about? Like worshiping while you're waiting and worshiping in the dark where we just grit our teeth and smile and act like everything's just fine because it's better to pretend like it's fine than it is to experience the pain of the waiting? Is Luke inviting us into, or would Anna be inviting us into this fantasy world where our problems and pain aren't real, but we worship God anyway because that's what you're supposed to do? Is this the equivalent of Hallmark Christianity where the Hallmark Christmas movies that we watch or some of you watch way too much and you just go, this makes me feel happy at Christmas, but it actually 
removes me from my reality where I don't actually have to deal with reality to get excited about Christmas. Is this Hallmark Christmas movie spirituality? Or is it something deeper? Like why in the world would Anna worship while she waits? Please don't miss this. For 84 years, in the dark, in the sorrow, in the waiting, in the longing, she's worshiping day and night. Not literally. Not, that's, not the, that's not the implication here that we should all quit our jobs and fast every day, all day. It's not talking about removing you from reality. It's talking about do you know how you're waiting and do you know what you're doing while you're waiting? Because Anna did. Why in the world would Anna worship while she waited? Well, first let's answer this question. What is worship? Do you know what worship is? And maybe a way to help you answer that question is, do you think you're already a worshiper or do you think someone needs to teach you how to worship? And please understand me, I'm not talking about does someone need to teach you how to sing for those of us that sing off key and need to make sure our microphones are off when it's singing time, okay? I'm not talking about do you need to learn how to sing I'm talking about, do you need to know how to worship, or are you already worshiping something? The word worship literally comes from the Old English worth-ship, like friendship. It's like where ship, the, that, that suffix on the end of that word just connotates the essence of the thing. Worth-ship. It means like, do, do you actually ascribe worth to things? Do you give value to things with your affections, with your attention, and with your time, and with your money? Do you ascribe value to things in your life? We do it every day. We believe at Midtown that all of life is worship. Not because you need to be waking up singing every day, but do you know that every day you wake up giving worth to something? And you wake up every day giving worth to something, and the thing that you've chosen to give worth to will drive and dictate how you spend that day. Do you know you woke up a worshiper? Do you know you woke up giving worth, giving value to something in your life? You're a worshiper. No one needs to teach you how to worship. David Foster Wallace, brilliant author of the last generation or so, he died a little over a decade ago, but he says it this way in, a, in an infamous um, commencement speech um, you can find online, at least the audio of it. Uh, his speech is called This is Water. It's a, it's a brilliant and, and painful speech. But this, he, he, at the time when he gave this speech, not a, not a Christian, not, not a believer in Jesus, not a follower of Jesus. Listen to what he says about humanity in the, as it relates to this idea of are you a worshiper or not. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. There is no such thing as atheism. It doesn't exist. Not because everyone in the world would actually go, yeah, I believe there's a God. No, because something in your life has become a God. And you and I worship whatever we think God is. And so if you're a worshiper, then there's a deity in your life. So atheism actually doesn't exist. And we all worship the thing that we think will give us the life that we most deeply desire. And the Bible calls that your God. Whatever it is that you think will satisfy you, satiate you, end the waiting for you, is what you worship. And there is no such thing as atheism because all of us are worshiping something. Even if you're worshiping comfort. Even if you're worshiping the idea of 
um, a life that doesn't feel like the one that is your own right now. You're worshiping this fantasy world, or the Bible would call it a God for you. But because worship is literally anything that I ascribe worth to, literally anything I take my heart's affections and place them on and give it worth, I can worship anything. I can worship food. I can worship community. I can worship intimacy. I can worship the NBA. I love it. It has so much worth to me. I love watching. I can't wait for it to start again in two weeks. I love it. It has a lot of worth to me. I can worship my own comfort. I can worship my friendships. I can worship relief from the stress. I can worship a life of ease that doesn't have any difficulty or challenges or hardship in it. I can worship everything going the way that I want it to go. I can worship my own control. I can worship all kinds of things because all that worship is is me deciding in here that thing has worth to me. And one of the ways you'll know what has worth to you is where do you spend your time and money? Because you will give time and money to the things that have worth to you. And so you would look at my life most weeks and go, that dude worship, worships taproom across the street. Because he gives them lots of time and lots of money. But it's because they give me something. They're, they're giving me great beer. They're giving me time with people. I value relationships. I love the wait staff. I love the whole ambiance and the culture of how that patio works. I love all of it. I have given worth to that place and what it gives me. I worship it. And no, they're not paying me for a kickback. There's no plug right here. I'm just telling you, if you followed my calendar and followed my bank account, you'd say, he loves that place. He worships that place. Look at your life and the way you spend your time and your money and you will find what you think has worth. So I don't know if you're an atheist, self-diagnosed atheist or self-proclaiming atheist or an agnostic or a skeptic. I don't know if you're checking out church today or if you've been coming to church services since you were a fetus. Let me see your calendar and your bank account and I can tell you what you worship. I can tell what you think has worth to your life. And so again, in the words of David Foster Wallace, the question is not if you are a worshiper. The question is, what have you chosen to worship. Okay, we're going to go one step deeper. Everybody breathing okay? We need to come up for air because we're about to go deeper in the worship trail. It's not a rabbit trail. It's a treasure chest. There, there's things in here to, to mine out, but we have to understand something important. Everybody take a breath. Need a bathroom break because we're going, okay? Here, here, you can pause this at home if you need to get some coffee. They don't get that option in here. here here's, here's what is also true about worship that we, that we, we misunderstand about worship many times. We imagine, because we normally equate worship with singing, or we, we, we shallow that out, we tend to think that worship is just this thing that comes out of me and onto the thing that I've worshiped. And so worship is this one-way relationship where I worship something and then the relationship's over, and that the only effect that happens in worship is whatever I've chosen to give my time and money and attention and worth to, then I worship that thing and it stays there. And that the worship feedback ends when I worship that thing. But the Bible says, and actually your own brain says, that there's actually something deeper going on with worship. That actually worship is a formative act. That the thing that you and I choose to worship actually ends up forming us and shaping us at the same time. And then the more we are formed and shaped by it, the more we will worship it. And the more it forms us and shapes us as we worship it. It is not a one-way street. It's actually a two-way street. It's the spiritual power of habit 
and the spiritual power of affections. When you and I habitually and affectionately give worth to something, it shapes us, it changes us, it forms us, so much so that we become like the thing that we worship. Our brains, our very souls, are actually what psychologists, neurosurgeons would call, they are, we have, we have a plasticity to us neuroplasticity, literally, like your brain wiring is formable and once it's formed, it stays in that mold and is actually hard to change unless you reform it. Like the wiring of your very brain happens not based on what you think is cool, based on how you spend your time and your money and get what you give your affections and your worship to. What you worship will change you, literally, and it will so change you and form you and shape you that it will not become reformed or reshaped or, or unformed until you worship something else, until things change and actually literally like rewire your brain. It doesn't just happen because you think about something like, man, I shouldn't be spending so much time at Taproom. That's probably bad for the bank account and the liver, Right? It's, it's, me just knowing that isn't going to reshape what I have actually chosen and cause like the ruts in my very self to actually continue to give worship to. As one being formed by the things that I worship, I am then more likely and more prone to continue worshiping those same things. Therefore, it would follow that we need to worship the right things in order to then teach and form our hearts and awaken our hearts to show us what we're truly hungry for. For instance, if I worship money, totally hypothetically, I would never do that, but if I worship money and, and give worth to money and think that money will actually solve my problems and give me comfort and security, and if I stare at my bank account multiple times a week wondering how we're gonna get that, that number up and more zeros on there and where can we say, if I'm, do, if I'm obsessing and giving worth to money, it doesn't, I don't just, I don't ever arrive at a point where I've obsessed enough with it, uh, with it and now I'm, now I'm free from it. Actually, the more you obsess over it and the more you worship it and the more you give it your time and your attention, you actually are formed by it where actually then you begin to worship it more and you become like the very thing you're worshiping. You're, you're becoming obsessed with money and then you become more obsessed with money. You don't obsess over it to the point of freedom. You actually obsess over it and become enslaved to it. We are formable beings and we worship what we crave, and then we crave what we worship. And the cycle feeds on itself. Our habits form our hungers, and our hungers form our habits. The plasticity of the human brain is fascinating, and I'm not pretending to be an expert on it, but I know it's true. That the Bible actually speaks to it a lot, and modern neuroscience, modern neurobiology would actually prove it. So much so that you and I can't just be told when something that we're worshiping is shaping us in a negative way. Like you can know, you can know that patterns are destructive or that habits are, that are forming you have formed you in destructive ways, but even just telling your brain that doesn't rewire your brain. You can't just think your way into new hungers. You actually have to worship your way into new hungers. You have to worship your way out of the very wiring that have created them in the first place. So an author who's written a lot about this, taught me a lot about this, is a guy named James K. Smith. He's got a very wonderful book called You Are What You Love. 
Go read it before Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's on you. But here's, here's ooh, Siri wants to talk. Here's, the, here's, the, here's what James K. Smith says. It's a hilarious, ironic story about this very thing, about I, I, can, I can know something is powerful and has shaped me, but I need, to, I need more than just knowing it. I actually have to be reformed into doing something different. He tells the story of going on the journey of, and this is 10 or 12 years ago, but going on the journey of like, understanding sustainable farming and healthy agriculture and like what we put in our bodies that may not be good for us, highly processed foods, right? Like food ink and all that kind of stuff that kind of has, has had a big impact on culture. He's, he's reading a Wendell Berry book, which Wendell Berry is like the godfather of that whole universe. And some people are nodding, other people are uninformed. Uh, I'm kidding, um, but we need to rewire your brains a little bit. But so he's reading Wendell Berry. And he's reading Wendell Berry, like nodding along, like underlining, and he realizes he's decided to bring his Wendell Berry book about all of this, about healthy eating and healthy eating habits and what we put in our body and how it's grown and how it gets its way into our, into our mouths and in our grocery stores. And he says, I'm reading this while my wife is shopping at Costco and I'm eating in the Costco food court. He says, I'm literally stuffing my face with a Costco hot dog while reading Wendell Berry. Like, Pharisaism and hypocrisy has never been so stark, right? And, and so he, he realizes, I can know everything about how unhealthy this is, but guess what? My gut actually needs new habits, or I will continue stuffing my face with Costco hot dogs, even while I believe all this other stuff to be true about what I put in my body. His gut and his groaning needed to be trained into wanting new foods. He couldn't just know it wasn't healthy, Because you and I can't simply think our way into new taste and new hungers. We actually have to be trained out of them. We have to worship our way out of them. Here's the point of all this. What we worship actually helps us acquire new tastes. The habit-forming power of worship actually helps awaken our hunger and helps us acquire those new tastes. Tastes we were made to crave and tastes we were made to feast on that wouldn't leave us so unsatisfied. Like, we actually need new hungers. We need new soul taste buds to teach us what we're actually hungry for. And I can't just tell you that you need that. I can't just tell you that you need new cravings. You actually have to begin to eat the right things and then you will be craving the right things. We need to worship the Lord and adore him from our hearts in order to then be able to feast on him more in our hearts. Get this, coming all the way back to Anna, even when it's dark and even when we're waiting and even when it's difficult and even when we don't know when the waiting is going to be over, we need to worship the right things even when we're waiting, even when God seems silent. Because worshiping the Lord, giving worship, worshiping him, ascribing your heart's affections to him, singing is a great way to do that. It is certainly not the only way to do that. But giving the Lord worth with your heart's affections and with your time and with your money and with the things that are forming you with your habits, setting your heart's affections on him is what you're hungry for and it will produce in you new hungers for more of him. It will actually rewire your brain to realize no matter what you're doing, I'm actually hungry for the Lord. You're actually hungry for the Lord when you're eating a Costco hot dog. You're actually hungry for the Lord when you're having sex. You're actually hungry for the Lord when you're watching Netflix. You're actually hungry for the Lord when you're waiting on anything. 
You're hungry for the Lord, and you won't know that until you worship and give him worth to know that's actually what my heart's hungry for, but I haven't known that because I've taken my soul taste buds and attached them to money or comfort or, or sex or something that just says, hey, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Maybe this will satisfy it. We actually need new wirings, and worship is the way we actually reform ourselves into that. Our hungers get numbed, our hungers get restrained and stuffed like a beach ball under the water. They just, they get fixed onto these lesser feasts and we worship these other things. And so hear this, please hear this in total freedom with zero condemnation because Jesus isn't condemning you for this. Guess how often, please be sober enough and honest enough to understand this. Guess how often you and I need to reacquire our true taste buds. Guess how often we need to reacquire what we're actually hungry for. At least every week. That's why we do this. That's why the Lord built it into the rhythm of his people. Like you and I have feasted on so many things since last Sunday. We've given our our heart's affection and given worth to so many things. Most of of which you're not even aware you're doing it because your brain wiring is so used to doing it. And so every Sunday we have to come and get like, reacquire our taste, acquire the taste, acquire the taste, acquire the taste by worshiping what we were made to worship and feast on. This is what Anna has been doing for 84 years. She's been worshiping in the dark. She's been worshiping even when God seems silent, even when God seems like he's hidden himself. She's been worshiping night and day, worshiping, forming her heart in the dark, shaping her affections in the waiting. See, here's how we know the effect that the worshiping was having on Anna. This, this is profound. She's the, and Simeon, we'll get to him next week. They're the only two people at the temple that run up to baby Jesus. Like, the temple's crawling with people. And she's the only one, and Simeon, that runs up and goes, this is the one. How does she know that? Well, of course, the Lord showed her and told her, I'm, I'm not discrediting any of the Holy Spirit inside of her. Here's how I know she knew that, though. Because worshiping the Lord in her dark gave her a light to see. She actually had her hungers, her, her attention and her affection so fixed on what she knew would satisfy her that she had eyes to see it when it was right in front of her. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. That's the hopes and fears of all the years. Could it be that worshiping in the dark would actually give us a new set of eyes to see the light when it comes to us? Is that possible? That like everyone else around the temple, God loved them. I'm not judging them. I'm saying, is it possible that Anna knew it because she'd been worshiping in the dark for 84 years? See, because our last verse, Anna meets baby Jesus. She meets the Messiah It's the end of her longing because for 84 years her heart has been grieving and aching and forming and hungering for the thing that she knows her heart was made for. The hopes and fears of all the years are now right in front of her in the form of this baby. And she can feast on Jesus because she's been formed by Jesus. The worshiping in the dark actually formed her to be able to see. Have you ever been part of something that while you're experiencing it, like in real time, you're, you're aware enough to know this is bigger than what space and time can hold. You're probably feeling it right now because this is so epic. I'm kidding. But have you ever been a part like a wedding day for you or, or the birth of a child or a funeral of a loved one or a concert, whatever those are anymore, a concert of your favorite band where you go, I can't get 
I can't, I can't, I want to feel it, I want to eat it, I want to, I want to hold it, and time is moving too quickly. I can't, I can't contain it in this moment. I can't do it. That's what Anna is experiencing right now. This is the culmination of the waiting of thousands of years of promises and the longing of a waiting widow that says, it's here, and I can't hold it in space and time. The hopes and fears of all the years are right in front of me. Her waiting is over, and she only has the eyes to see it because she's been worshiping her way through the dark, and so now she can see more clearly than anybody. Her adoring in the dark gave her eyes to see the light. So here's the question for you. In 2020, with all of your aching and all of your longing, with whatever it is, there are so many answers to this question, but whatever it is that you think would, that you are actually waiting on, what is it that is causing God to appear silent to you? What is it? Whatever it is that you just answered in your own heart where you said, if this would just happen, my waiting would be over, um, it goes deeper than that. Whatever it is. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to long for, a bad thing to wait for. What I'm saying to you is that after that, behind that, Thousands of miles underneath that in your very soul is actually a waiting for something else. But if you don't know that, then you'll continue to attach all of your waiting hopes, all of your longing and all of your aching onto things that you will maybe get to experience soon. And I hope you do. But then you'll be waiting for something else. Do you know what your soul is actually waiting on? Anna knew. Anna knew what her soul was waiting on. It was the redemption of Israel. Do you know what you're waiting on? Anna knew she was waiting on a cosmic advent. And Anna knew she was waiting on the hopes and fears of all the years being met. Do you know what you're waiting on? Here's what Isaiah says about the second advent of Jesus, because that's what we're doing right now. We're waiting on the second advent of Jesus. He's already advented once. And now in, in a crazy world, we're actually um, courageous enough to say, I'm waiting on the second one too, and I actually think it's going to happen because the first one already did. Here's what Isaiah says we're waiting on. Here's what Isaiah says will happen at the second advent. This is what's coming to you and what you are actually waiting on it, on whether or not you have eyes to see it or not. This comes from Isaiah 45. He says, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the shame of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let me read that one more time. This is what is coming to you if you belong to Jesus, whether or not you know this is what you're actually waiting on. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the shame of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
You're waiting for all of your tears to be wiped away. You're waiting for all of your shame to be removed. So much so that the hopes and fears of all the years that you know is alive and well in you, you're waiting for the face of God to appear to advent among us once again. So that on that day it will be said, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. And our bedrock of hope that that day will come, that the second advent is true, is founded on two brief things. Not small things, but I'll, I'll say them briefly. The first is that what we talk about at Christmas was the first advent. It was the first arrival of Jesus. And so we find hope for the second advent because we believe the Christmas story is true. I believe it. I believe that the Messiah came in the form of a baby in a manger. But our anchor of hope in the apparent silence of God, our, our, our bedrock, our foundation, our confidence in what appears to be a silent and far off God is actually that this baby Jesus, whom Anna is adoring, that 30 years later he would actually be plunged into the depths of God's ultimate silence for you. That on the cross is where Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, why are you so silent? Meaning I'm crying out to my father who I've known from eternity past and he's not answering me. That Jesus experienced the hell of God's silence so that you never would have to. Jesus had his back turned on him by his father so that you and I would never have to. So no matter what it feels like or appears like in your waiting, God has not hidden himself from you. God was silent when Jesus called to him so that you would know he would never be silent when you call to him, even if it feels like it. So we're about to sing. We're gonna close, we're gonna take communion, then we're gonna sing this song, O come, all ye faithful. And we're gonna repeat that phrase in the song. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. And here's what I would I would invite you into. Would you risk meaning those words? Even if you hate Jesus right now. Would you risk adoring Jesus and believing that it's what your heart actually is hungry for? Would you risk adoring Jesus even if life's excruciating circumstances make you feel like he's silent and hidden right now? Would you worship and adore Jesus in the darkness of your life and let that adoring shape you and form you and awaken your hunger for the God that will one day wipe away all of your tears? Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we're waiting for you. May it be said of your church, may it be said of your bride, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him. Would you be our tear-wiping God even now, comforting us with the comfort of Jesus uh, as, we, as we come to feast on him. Make us adoring church Members, make us, make us your adoring bride that adores you in the dark that we might see you in the light. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.